welcome to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on literature, art, and film. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I sit down with Kane Academy's Director of Instruction, Jeanette DeSell Zorneman, who just recently published her latest guide, leading a seminar on Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. To my mind, her subject is the greatest novel ever written. And this guide, well, it's simply the best resource available on how to teach it. You're going to love what Jeanette has to say in this interview. Now, I do need to issue a spoiler alert. If you didn't already know, there's a mystery at the heart of this novel. Jeanette and I are going to touch on some important details related to its solution. So please be warned. With that said, I hope you enjoy this podcast on the greatest novel ever written. Jeanette, congratulations on the publication of your latest guide on the Brothers Karamazov. You seem pretty excited about this one. I am. It was a real pleasure to revisit an old favorite. And it was humbling, too. It's, it's a big story to get one's arms around. It really it doesn't get any bigger than that, but you, you did such a great job, and I'm so excited for our listeners to hear your mind on this uh I would, this novel, which I think is the best novel ever written. So let's get going. Uh, I'd like to reference another guide that you've written, Reading Fiction from the Inside Out. And there, Jeanette, you always encourage readers to enter into the world created by the author. I know that this novel takes place in a village, so in one respect, that's a pretty, pretty uh, small world. On the other hand, the world of the Brothers Karamazov does not feel small at all. How would you describe the world Dostoevsky creates for us? This is a really good question. I actually think the world of the Brothers Karamazov feels quite intimate for much of the novel. I think because so much of it happens in these very personal conversations that occur in parlors and in gardens. But it does break open into wider spaces in Book Nine when Dmitri is arrested and then charged with the murder of his father. That's when we meet a much wider cast of characters that we hadn't paid much attention to prior to the arrest. I'm thinking here of the civil authorities, the deputy prosecutor, Kirillovich, the investigating lawyer, the new district doctor, the police, Captain Makarov, and then eventually we do meet up with the defense attorney, Fedikovich. So book nine has this very peculiar effect, I think, on the reader, suddenly we're plunged into a world of strangers who really don't know or care about the characters that we've come to know so intimately. And as a consequence, they're completely out of step with what's going on in the lives of these characters, and it's kind of jarring. We don't shake loose of that state apparatus until the close of Book 12 when the trial ends, and it's a tremendous relief to slip that leash and all the machinations surrounding the trial. In the epilogue, we finally do get to return to some of our old friends in more intimate surroundings. I think this is that thing that Dostoevsky has done in um, book two, uh, in The Unfortunate Gathering, when he's describing the inability of the secular and civil apparatus to account for the spiritual inclinations of human beings. We see that inability, especially on display in the police interrogations of Dmitri, when he's just pouring out the deepest secrets of his heart and the investigators simply don't 
understand what he's talking about. So in that sense, there are two different kinds, two different worlds kind of running on parallel courses. There's this intimate world that we are so attuned to, and then there's this larger world. And then on the other hand, and maybe maybe this is what you're getting at, Dostoevsky has given a great deal of attention to the details of his world. It can be almost overwhelming to keep track of all the names, the patronymics, the nicknames, all the physical inventory, never mind the characters and all their idiosyncratic concerns and attributes. I know a lot about Dostoevsky's characters and what drives them in large matters and even in small matters. And I know, for instance, that Dmitri is ashamed of the appearance of his bare feet. We discover that during the interrogations. And that Kolya Krasatkin has a habit of baiting the peasants on the street. Now, neither one of those details is essential to the meaning of the story, but they do give this novel especially an especially rich and realistic texture. And in that sense, I think you're right. Dostoevsky has created a whole world. Incidentally, and I think this is important for our listeners who happen to be teachers, this is one of the most attractive features of this novel for older secondary students. It really grabs them by the collar and pulls them into another very believable world. My students regularly named The Brothers Karamazov their all-time favorite book. Yeah, well, as I said earlier, um, I think it's the greatest book ever. It's it's my all-time favorite book. I really like what your comments just did for us. It helped us understand how believable the world is that that Dostoevsky creates, but also how real he makes our world. Yes. I often hear teachers leading their students to interpret the major characters in the novel as archetypes. That is, each major character represents something. For example, Ivan represents the intellect, Alyosha, faith, Dmitri, the sensual, and so on. You don't treat the characters that way. Why, why not? Yeah. It, it's hard to imagine treating Yvonne or any of these characters as archetypes. That's such a one-dimensional approach. And I would imagine a much diminished reading experience for the students. Dostoevsky has crafted his characters in such rich detail, and he's developed them so beautifully. I could not reduce these characters to archetypes any more than I could reduce my friends and family to archetypes. I know them so well. But I do recognize what you're talking about, and I think Ivan probably falls prey to that kind of caricature more than any other of the characters. He's often portrayed as a kind of brooding, cold, intellectual archetype of the modern rebel who rebels against God. And I have to say, Yvonne sometimes seems to relish playing that role in uh, society. But in his three confessions to Alyosha, he lays out in such heartfelt language his righteous anger at the suffering of the innocents, specifically innocent children. And he relates a series of seven anecdotes in the chapter called Rebellion that sum up the kind of cruelty children are subjected to by their tormentors. Incidentally, these stories were real stories that Dostoevsky knew of personally, so they have a kind of um, fiery relevance to them. And this kind of suffering has led Ivan to reject God as either cruelly indifferent to human suffering or simply non-existent. And 
he argues that there is simply no adequate theodicy that can solve that problem for him. And of particular interest, as you know, is the argument that this suffering is only possible because of the freedom that God insists on granting human beings. So all of that sits at the heart of his three confessions in Book 5. But Ivan is a great deal more complicated, I think, than any of that suggests, which is partly why he's so human and so recognizable. In many respects, Ivan is an orphan. His very young mother died when he was just a boy, and his father forgot about him and abandoned him. In fact, at one point in the story, Ivan discovers that his father doesn't even remember who his mother was, which is so jarring to us as readers and so damaging to Ivan. It really infuriates him. We also learn that Ivan was deeply ashamed at being passed around from, from, from one relative to another and of being forgotten by those same relatives. He's a very lonely man, and he's lived an incredibly isolated life. We also learned that Ivan harbors thoughts of suicide. We learned that in the interview with Alyosha. But he says the freshness of life keeps him alive, the springtime and the beautiful flowers that open. And up until quite recently, he thought he could live like that, and he could escape any entanglements or attachments. But then he discovers he's fallen in love. He's fallen in love with this woman, and I think his life is quite changed for it. This is true even though the woman refuses his love. I think that love surprises him, and it might actually be the real reason he's in town after all. But I think the most important aspect of his character is that despite all of his best efforts to silence it, he has a finely tuned conscience, and that conscience is driving him forward. It's driving him to, to probe, to recollect, and to even possibly publicly confess his guilt. He spends an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to recall his darkest wishes, and he seems to suffer from a kind of self-imposed amnesia. I think that's because he thought he could evade responsibility for his father and his brothers, but he can't. So, as you can see, he's not an archetype. He's a fully formed, complicated individual who's been injured by an often cruel world, but he's also a sensitive man of conscience who discovers his own involvement in that cruelty and, amazingly, his own need for forgiveness. So I encourage our listeners to steer clear of that uh, archetypal approach to these characters. The novel merits, I think, a special devotion to the development of its characters in their evolving stories rather than, say, abstractions. Let's stick with Yvonne's character a little bit more here. Uh, you make a really compelling case. I loved all the evidence you rolled out. Maybe the most memorable scene in the whole book, maybe the most famous scene, is the one where Yvonne presents the prose mm. poem, The Grand Inquisitor, yeah. to Alyosha. And a lot of people will lift The Grand Inquisitor out of the novel and read it as a solo text. What do you think of that practice? I recognize this practice, too, and I think it stems from a desire to treat the prose poem as a freestanding entry in a philosophical debate about the problem of God or the problem of evil. That term, the problem of God, is such a misnomer. I think it really should be called the problem of man, but that's what it's called in modern 
philosophical circles. But in general, I think it's a mistake to cannibalize any piece of literature in this way, but in this case, it's especially perverse, since that poem stems from the mind of this heartsick man I've just described to you, a man who actually eventually recognizes his own involvement in this whole messy business of being alive. Book 11. In Book 11, we see the first inkling, I think, that the Grand Inquisitor does not speak for Yvonne, at least not anymore if he ever really did. So treat that prose poem out of context, I think, robs him of his essential development as a character. I also happen to know that Dostoevsky himself expressed serious concerns that we read the entire novel as one long, developed response to Yvonne's arguments. In other words, he warned us off of reading book five in isolation from the rest of the novel, and for very good reasons. I think it could be very damaging to read book five in isolation uh, with young students. Jeanette, do you think it's helpful to think of this novel as modern? Does it illuminate the world we live in today by thinking about it that way? Yes, I think it is. There's so much of this novel that speaks to the present age. Dostoevsky mocks, I think, what we would call the therapeutic culture, although he doesn't use that language. He uses the language of the European Enlightenment primarily. Sometimes he does these in these these humorous parodies, so think of Peter Musoff or the opportunistic Rakitin. And there's the prosecutor, Ippolit Kurilovich, who fancies himself a psychologically astute observer, but he completely misses the story that's right in front of his nose, and he misses it because he's deceived by the testimony of corrupt witnesses, most notably the real murderer himself. If the consequences weren't so serious for Dmitri, Ippolit's closing remarks could almost be construed as humorous. So there are a lot of moments like these in the novel when the operation of a psychology utterly fails to grasp how things really are. Dostoevsky is often referred to as a psychological writer, but his psychology takes the whole human being into account. He doesn't reduce his characters to chemistry. He doesn't like these uh, newfangled pseudosciences that weigh in on the human heart. But he does let us closely examine the possibility of a world scrubbed of any spiritual nature. That's the materialist view of human beings. And the underlying assumption in that argument is that happiness and the fulfillment of human beings can be met simply by satisfying their material needs. That's the promise of the socialist, and the socialist promise is all over this novel. It's essentially the Grand Inquisitor's argument as well. But the promise is a lie, as we discover in this novel. Human beings are not merely matter. They are also spirit. And no amount of material satisfaction can meet their deepest needs. In fact, the satisfaction of material needs sometimes leads to perverse results. I'm thinking here of Madame Holocoff and her daughter Lisa, who suffer from boredom, I think, from, from the kind of wealth they enjoy. And it leads to perverse consequences in their lives. I think the denial of the spirit is the greatest temptation in the novel, and it's the one Yvonne struggles with the most. What he ultimately discovers, as you know, is that he can't deny the spirit without disastrous consequences. If human beings are nothing more than matter, then we don't owe them any particular reverence, or as Yvonne puts it early on in the novel, he can just leave one reptile to devour another.
which is essentially what he does, and it's why he suffers so much profound guilt. And I think the fact of his guilt is the proof of the moral reality he's denying. Dostoevsky's portrait, I think, of the abolition of God and the spirit as something that leads directly to the abolition of man is very reflective of the 20th century writ large. In fact, it is the 20th century. Dostoevsky also paints a world largely devoid of fatherhood. There are a lot of fatherless characters in this novel. I'm thinking of Krasatkin, Katerina. We never see a father on the scene with Katerina or Lisa, and, of course, Father Zazama and his brother Markle. These are all fatherless children, and the absence of their fathers is destructive to them in the community. And even when the fathers are present, they tend to be neglectful, so sometimes... You know, sometimes they're benignly neglectful and sometimes maliciously so. I'm thinking here of um, Captain Snegorayov, who drinks too much. He can't seem to provide for his family. And then, of course, there's the incredibly malignant Fyodor, who torments his sons. This, I think, throws the surrogate fatherhood of Zazama into stark relief. He's the true father, and he leaves behind this young disciple, Alyosha, who reenacts that surrogacy for the boys who are already gathering around him at the end of the novel. And most important of all is this talk of neglectful fatherhood, um, I think, sits behind Ivan's anger with God the Father, whom he accuses of negligence and cruelty. You know, the image of the father from the, pro the parable of the prodigal son, I think, sits at the core of this novel. I know there's a lot of talk about Job, especially in Zazima's reflections, but the parable of the prodigal son seems to resonate with me more. Zazima, I think, reflects that kind of fatherhood for the wayward son, and Fyodor is the antithesis of that father. So at any rate, these are some of the very modern issues that sit at the heart of the novel, and I address more in the uh, guide. Mm. Boy, that's really helpful. Let's continue a little bit with Father Zazama, who's one of the most intriguing characters in the whole novel. He, he is very intriguing, but at the same time, he can be really difficult to understand and very foreign to American readers, young American readers anyway. Are there good strategies for helping the students to acclimate to Zazama? I think one of the greatest problems for young readers of Zazama is that they tend to to read him in a kind of preachy way. The record of his life and his homilies in book six can sound a bit banal, like a cheap greeting card when they're read out of context. And also, young readers have absorbed a great deal of cheap popular culture. And unfortunately, it's often a temptation for the students to resort to that uh, kind of psychologizing which is an imported language and doesn't actually conform to or reflect what the page is saying. I have found over the years that the best way to avoid some of this saccharine sentimentality is to read Zazama's words aloud for them occasionally and have the students practice recreating the experience that gives rise to the words, reformulating what he is saying in the most precise language they can summon, I think, is key. Also, there is a pattern of conversion that emerges over the course of the novel from Markle to Zazama 
to Alyosha, and I think even to Dmitri in his in his final conclusions about his relationship with Grushenka. And I think paying close attention to that pattern will help the students as well. The problems these characters face cannot be resolved through philosophical debates or theodicies, as Ivan suggests in Book 5. I think that's one of Zazima's great insights. These characters can only experience any kind of um, repair through a particular set of experiences, and we get to see some of those experiences enacted close up. I think those are great strategies, and all of us who teach the book would do well to, to mm-hmm. embrace them and use them. The novel, Jeanette, introduces us to some remarkable spiritual moments, and you, you, you did touch on a couple of them already, but these are especially uh, related by Father Zazima, so I'm, I'm going to continue with him a little bit more. One of the more difficult experiences that we encounter is the interconnectedness of worlds. Mm, yes. How do you make sense of that as it illuminates the lives of the characters and beyond that as it illuminates our lives? This is, this is, I think, the heart of the novel, this interconnectedness. And it's, it's a fundamental reality that Zosima keeps directing the readers and the other characters to notice and embrace. It's difficult to talk about it because it's, um, it's born of a kind of mystical experience. It's a reality that cannot be ultimately evaded, however. I think... For all of his anger about the evil in the world, Ivan is sitting on a mountaintop of his own evil wishes, and it takes him almost the entirety of the novel to grasp and acknowledge his responsibility, in this case, for his father's death. Incidentally, I just wanted to point out that language of the garden, I think, is one of those repeated images that permeates the story. The garden, I think, is Eden, and it has been, and it is even now, and it will be forever. That's how I read it in the story. It's, it's either tended to or it's desecrated. And the garden includes all of existence, not just human beings, but animal life, plant life, and the cosmos. And since it's so hard to talk about, I'll just give a handful of examples of the interconnectedness. It's, it's hard to talk about without saying, sounding kind of banal, like I was talking about earlier, but it's borne out throughout the whole story. So let's just take Dmitri's case. Dmitri's beating of Captain Snegorayev sets off a whole series of events that culminate in the death of that man's innocent son, Ilusha. Dmitri obviously did not intend the death of the boy, but as readers were left with no doubt that his actions contributed to his death. And that blossoms out into a series of other connected relationships. Secondly, uh, take a look at Zazima's life. Had the younger Zazima not repented of beating his orderly, he would not, I think, have put his life on the line at the duel. And as it is that decision to take the shot from the other unopposed saved not just the life of the man, but the life of his wife, and even this mysterious stranger we later discover uh, has um, secretly confessed to Zazama because he witnessed Zazima's public courage. And then third, Grushenka's mercy towards Alyosha, I think, directly saves him from spiritual death that night that um, Rakitin brings Alyosha to Grushenka. 
So I could go on and on here, but this language that uh, Dostoevsky is employing speaks to this responsibility, he says, of all for all. And that language, as I said, penetrates the story at almost every level, from the main plot lines to the subplots. And the interconnectedness joins heaven and earth now, vertically and horizontally, and it's what Alyosha experiences as an ever-expanding reality in his mystical vision. And that mystical vision, mystical vision erases all of that anger and betrayal that he experienced at the grotesque slander of Zazima. That vision of the Feast of Cana that he has is, I think, a, a terrific rebuke of the Grand Inquisitor. The miracle wasn't used to dominate the wedding guests. It just was uh, performed to make a poor wedding feast more joyful. And contrary to the Grand Inquisitor, those who attend that feast that Alyosha has a vision of are what I would call perfectly imperfect. They're not perfect. They don't have to be perfect to attend that feast, which points to another aspect of the interconnectedness. No one is above this mess. Everybody's involved, for better or for worse, and I think that's why forgiveness is the only way back into the garden. I think Ivan thought that he could remain aloof from that catastrophe, and I think more than any other character, he is acutely attuned to that catastrophe. But he can't avoid it. He can't remain aloof. He's involved. The question, I think, now at the end is whether, whether he can ask for and receive forgiveness. Is it okay if I read one of my favorite passages? No, please do. This is from Book 7, Chapter 4. It's called Cana of Galilee. I'm going to make one elision, one small elision. This occurs just after Alyosha has experienced his mystical vision. He did not stop on the steps either, but went quickly down. His soul, overflowing with rapture, yearned for freedom, space, and openness. The vault of heaven full of soft, shining stars stretched vast and fathomless above him. The Milky Way ran in two pale streams from the zenith to the horizon. The fresh, motionless, still night enfolded the earth. The white towers and golden domes of the cathedral gleamed out against the sapphire sky. The gorgeous autumn flowers in the beds round the house were slumbering till morning. The silence of earth seemed to melt into the silence of the heavens. The mystery of earth was one with the mystery of the stars. In his rapture he was weeping, even over those which were shining to him from the abyss of space, and he was not ashamed of that ecstasy. There seemed to be threads from all those innumerable worlds of God linking his soul to them, and it was trembling all over in contact with other worlds. He longed to forgive everyone and for everything and to beg forgiveness. Oh, not for himself, but for all men, for all and for everything. And others are praying for me too, echoed again in his soul. But with every instant, he felt clearly and, as it were, tangibly, that something firm and unshakable as that vault of heaven had entered into his soul. Isn't that beautiful? So beautiful. 
he says later that someone visited my soul in that hour. And he says this is a moment he will never forget. And you'll notice he leaves the monastery three days later. Mm. So I think this is a great expression of that interconnectedness I was just talking about. Mm. Yes, beautiful. Jeanette, in, in all of your guides and in all of your, your blog posts, you consistently encourage readers uh, to read characters from fiction sympathetically. It strikes me that it's a lot easier to do that with some characters than with others. So, you know, Father Zosimo, Alyosha, yes. look, everyone loves them, yes. and we can't get enough of them. Yes. On the other hand, we have these less lovable characters, Marinikov, Fyodor, Grushenka. Is your counsel to, to read them sympathetically as well? Yes. In, in general, we have to give characters a sympathetic reading just in order to understand them. This does not, of course, mean that we have to like them or want to be in a world with them. But in order to understand anybody, we have to listen carefully to their words, and, this, and we have to observe their actions. And I think this is true of characters in novels just as it is true in real life. And um, you mentioned Grushenka. Grushenka, I have to confess, I, I didn't much care for her the first time I met her, but my admiration for her kind of spirited character grew as I came to know her better. And it also helped to discover that much of what she looks like on the surface is a cleverly constructed artifice, I think, to protect her from predatory men. Also, to never be at the mercy of another man like she was with that, um, that soldier five years earlier. Even Fyodor, who's possibly the least likable character in the novel, merits, I think, our special attention. He, he read to me on my first encounter with him like one of those bad guys in a made-for- TV mystery, who you know is is going to be eliminated in the first three minutes. But I listened to Fyodor more carefully on this reading, and I discovered that he suffers a lot of anxiety, especially at nighttime, when he, um, he suffers from these tremendous bouts of fear about dying, which I think probably demonstrates a kind of residue of conscience. He also, I think, genuinely loves Alyosha, and he's so saddened when Alyosha departs for the seminary. But, but uh, he's also surprisingly supportive of Alyosha's decision. And I, I say surprisingly because we know him to be an irreverent and vulgar man, but I think he does love Alyosha, knows that Alyosha's choice is uh, born from his heart. Smerdikov is a real puzzle. But I think that Dostoevsky has led us to, um, to evaluate him more mercifully than we might otherwise. He is, I think in many respects, a lot like the abused children that Ivan speaks so passionately about in Book 5. He's the result of a rape of his simpleton mother who died in childbirth. And... Now he serves at the table of his probable father, who treats him as a servant worthy of scorn. And in this respect, again, Fyodor strikes me as the perfect inverse of the prodigal son's father. And it is true, Smirnikov is cruel, a lot like his father, and he certainly has a murderer's heart from a youthful age. We learn about his youth, the way he treated other life when he was young. 
But he has his reasons, and we owe him a hearing if we want to understand him. And I can't help but speculate, and I know it's just speculation, but whenever I read uh, Smerdyakov, I can't help but speculate what might have happened had he ever met Father Zazama. But we never do see them in the same room, and we never hear the kind of advice Zaza might have given him. But intriguingly, we do see a copy of Father Isaac's homilies on Smerdyakov's bedside table during that last interview with Ivan. It makes me wonder if he's something's happening to him spiritually. Also, Ivan, we have to remember, never would have come to his personal responsibility and his remorse had Smerdyakov not pressed him. In other words, Smerdyakov serves a necessary purpose despite whatever evil motivations he might harbor. I guess the point is you have to get to know these characters to discover what drives them and to understand them and all their complicated uh, nature. Another very important teaching principle or guideline that you consistently pass on to your fellow teachers is to draw a helpful distinction between philosophical works on the one hand and fiction on the other. At the same time, you also point out that a great work of fiction raises issues, or it sometimes raises issues. Mm, yes. How do you draw the distinction here between the Brothers Karamazov as a book that raises issues and a book that's about ideas? Mm, yeah, this, I think this is a very important question. <clears throat> I think this book is possibly the most philosophically interested novel secondary students can read. The characters uh, have these long, sustained, dense dialogues with one another. In fact, a lot of the action of this story takes place in these conversations, which is a funny way to think about action. And the characters themselves entertain, in many cases, large philosophical questions. Almost all of the characters are alive intellectually to one degree or another. And because they're raising these issues, and because so much of the action is imbued with their intellectual struggles, these issues, I think, arise quite naturally in an unforced way. Fiction, as I have said on occasion, often raises philosophical issues, just like being alive raises those same questions. And the characters in the Brothers Karamazov address those issues in a deep way. So it makes sense to explore them, just as the characters do. But at the same time, we have to bear in mind that this is not a philosophical treatise dressed in fictional garb. So as I was saying earlier, Ivan is not an archetype for an idea. He's not an abstraction. It's still a novel, and Dostoevsky earns every character that he develops, and he's created a concrete world. But it is a world populated by these thoughtful, reflective individuals who think about and who discuss serious issues. So the key is to not abstract the discussions into philosophical propositional statements. We have to closely examine how the characters themselves think about the world and their place in it, and how they act as a consequence. This goes to my earlier remark that the Grand Inquisitor should not be read in isolation from the remainder of the novel. It's, part of, it's a key part of the development of Yvonne's character. That's really helpful. Can you, uh, let's, let's probe a little bit. Um, you said some great things about how it's a modern novel and how um, 
it both is a believable, uh, Dostoevsky has created a believable world and also makes our world more real. Mm. Let, let's turn to Dostoevsky himself for just a little bit. Can, can you tell our listeners something about his life, you know, uh, some highlights? It's a complicated story, his story. I'll just give you some of the, as you said, the highlights. He was born in Moscow in 1821, and he came from a large and religiously devout family. His father was a doctor. His father took a keen interest in his children's education. At some point, he was actually homeschooling them. Uh, Dostoevsky's mother died from tuberculosis when he was about 15, and his father died just a couple years later. He and his brother were away at the Academy of Military Engineers in St. Petersburg when their father died. That was a very heartbreaking event and, and confusing in both their lives. They had confusing relationships with their father. After he graduated from the Academy, he turned to writing, which was all he ever really wanted to do anyway. Both he and his brother loved books, and they wanted to publish books, and they eventually did. He published his first novel, Poor Folk, in 1846, and that launched his career. But while he was in St. Petersburg in 1848, he began meeting with a revolutionary organization that was dedicated to socialism, and the name of the group was the Petrushevsky Circle. And as you know from your study of history, 1848 is that year of the European revolutions that were sweeping so many monarchs off their thrones, and Tsar Alexander was paying close attention to those events. So he began to uh, sponsor a real crackdown on revolutionary groups like the Petrushevsky Circle. And Dostoevsky got swept up in a police raid, and he was... Uh, interrogated and imprisoned, and ultimately he was sentenced, along with 23 others, to death by firing squad. And as it is at the last minute, Alexander commuted their sentences, uh, which I guess was the plan all along, according to some sources, although I'm not quite sure about that. But those sentences were commuted to four years penal servitude in Omsk, Siberia, uh, to be followed by six more years in exile, uh, serving in the military. I read somewhere that Dostoevsky lived with 10-pound irons strapped to his legs for all four years of his hard labor. Unimaginable. It's unimaginable. The prison population was not restricted to political prisoners, which means he had sustained contact with some very hardened criminals, many of whom later showed up in his, uh, his writing, in his novels later. He already suffered from poor health, but it deteriorated further when he began to experience full-blown epileptic episodes, and that was something he endured for the rest of his life. Apparently he had had some mild episodes prior to prison, but these were full-on uh, devastating episodes. Ultimately, he was permitted to return to St. Petersburg in 1859, and then he resumed his career in writing. But he was, as you can well imagine, a very altered man after prison. Let's, uh, can you say a little bit more about that? How exactly was he altered? Well, for one thing, he was no longer a socialist. Um, he no longer had these old kind of romantic views of the peasant life. He was surrounded by a very tough crowd, and um, he just, he, I think he was disabused of some of his more romantic notions. He had a, um, 
a new keen insight into the criminal mind, which fueled much of his writing later. He also regained his Russian Orthodox faith in prison. <clears throat> I read somewhere that on that horrible 1,400-mile ride to Omsk, Siberia, some commentators think that that ride was uh, engaged in an open carriage. It was very cold. In any case, he was given a Bible by some women who had followed their Decemberist husbands into exile. That Bible became very much a treasure to him for the remainder of his life. He slept with it beneath his pillow every night and occasionally taught prisoners how to read from it. I recently discovered that on his deathbed, Dostoevsky gathered his family together and had the parable of the prodigal son read aloud from that same Bible. He wanted his children, I think, to treasure the hope that parable offers. I don't I don't have um I don't think there's any doubt that Dostoevsky often led a less than noble life, but he does seem to have returned to his faith at critical moments in his life. So I think those are the main changes in his life. But to return to his biography, he had uh, two marriages. The first marriage um, ended when she passed away. The second one was to a much younger Anna. Anna was a skilled stenographer, which is actually how he first met her. And he dictated a great deal of his work to her. She seems to have been, uh, or kind of offered a balance to his life. And um, she helped keep him sober. She helped him master some of his addictions, most famously his gambling addiction that was so devastating to their family life. They had uh, four children, two daughters and two sons. The first daughter, Sophia, died of pneumonia at three months of age, and his last son, Alexei, died of epilepsy just short of his third birthday. Alexei is the formal name for Alyosha, and that's the name, as you know, that he gave to his hero and the brothers Karamazov. Mm. Both of these deaths, according to Anna, were, were experienced as, as real traumas. Mm. And, um, but, the, but the second one was especially devastating, in part because he blamed himself for his son's epilepsy. It, I read somewhere that Anna was so worried for his uh, well-being that she sent him to Aptina Pustin Monastery, where he met with uh, the much-revered Father Ambrose. And some... Commentators believe that Father Zazama is based on Ambrose and that those beautiful, tender words that Zazama speaks to the peasant woman who had just lost her last year, remember her? Those are the exact words of comfort that Father Ambrose spoke to Dostoevsky to be relayed to his wife, Anna. Hmm. So there's a lot of um, beautiful touchstone there in his own life. Hmm. That's one of my favorite scenes. I know, I know. Very moving. He knew what it was to lose a child. And I think that passage in The Brothers Karamazov is especially affecting because he knows what it is to lose a child. He died in 1881, and the estimated number of those who attended his funeral is pretty, it ranges pretty widely, from 30,000 to 100,000. I don't know, I don't know which one is which number is accurate. If our listeners want to know more about his life, Joseph Frank wrote an excellent biography of him, 
And there is now an abridged version available as well, which is a good thing because the original is five volumes. And now you can get it in a, a one-volume version, uh, which is pretty significantly, yeah. it's, it's pretty long, but it's still very much worth investing in. Speaking of large endeavors, <laughs> some teachers might just blanch at the size oh, of the Brothers yeah, Karamazov. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of the biggest uh, yeah. works possible uh, to teach. How, how do you manage leading a seminar on this novel with secondary mm. students within the limits of a normal school semester? Mm. In, in general, do you have any concrete advice for teachers? Yeah, at first blush, it might seem daunting. Just the number of pages alone can seem overwhelming. This copy that I have here is about 700 pages, but the pages are very large, and I think some of the the other editions can reach almost 900 pages. That's uh, like that the one I used for yeah. years, the yeah. Signet version? Yes, I think, I think yeah. it's Signet, yeah. So my advice, my first advice, is to read the novel in its totality before teaching it, so that you know the story before you have to lead a class through it. It helps to know in advance, for instance, that both Books 5 and 11 will take more time to read and discuss. Whereas book 8, this is, this is the uh, book that um, follows Dimitri's movements, The Night of the Murder. Book 8 could probably be managed in one two-hour discussion. It's good to know these things, in other words, in advance. But can you remind us about books 5 and 11? Books 5 and 11 concentrate, are concentrated on Ivan. And uh, Ivan uh, has his three confessions to Alyosha in book five. Mm. This is Brothers Make Friends, Rebellion, oh, and yeah, Grand yeah. Inquisitor. And then he has those two encounters with Smerdikov in chapters six and seven. Book 11 is, is really a close treatment of Ivan's attempts to recollect whatever it is that's, um, whatever his involvement was in the murder of his father. Mm. And it follows him very, very closely. Those two books are going to take much longer to treat, whereas book eight, like I said, you could probably get that done in one conversation. I think uh, teachers, as they map it out, should consider treating just one book at a time per seminar discussion, bearing in mind that some books might take more than one discussion. There are 12 books plus the epilogue, and taking each in turn in an isolated way is very helpful. In my experience, a very rich discussion of the novel can be achieved in 40 hours of class time, which for us was about four weeks. Second, I recommend teachers write out a detailed syllabus uh, of writing uh, reading assignments and that they give it to their students so the students know how you plan to execute it. Mm -hmm. I think it's important also to give them a fair amount of in-class reading time to accomplish these very long reading assignments. And <clears throat> when the teachers make these assignments, they should pay special attention to the groupings of chapters. For instance, book five, chapters three through seven, I think should be read as one assignment. I, um, I've given more particular advice on these matters in the guide. Third, I encourage teachers not to be overwhelmed by the density and not strive to cover every single point of interest in their first teaching. Not everything has to be dealt with thoroughly on a first reading. And this is your student's first reading, presumably. Fourth, and I think this is something those of us who have read this book forget, is that we have to guard the mystery that sits at the heart of the novel. It is a true murder mystery, and the student's um, enjoyment of that aspect of the novel should be protected 
by us. So, and also entertained by us. So from time to time, it's not a bad idea to allow the students to discuss who they think committed the crime. That's just part of the pleasure of reading any murder mystery. Fifth, I think it's important to give students a list of the Russian names and any diminutives that occur in the text, and I think you should stick with the spellings of the translation you're using. So carefully study the translation you're using and use those spellings. The students, um, the students will need to be able to notice when diminutives are being used and why at critical moments. For instance, Book 8 is often named for Dmitri's diminutive Mitya in most translations, and the book is concentrated especially on his immature and kind of childlike character. And similarly, the fact that the drunken peasant is singing a song that includes Ivan's diminutive Vanka is equally important. Mm. Also, you'll notice that Dmitri's, um, Dmitri's <clears throat> diminutive is used a lot in the book, whereas Ivan's is not. Ivan is consistently called Ivan. I think that's kind of intriguing. It's helpful to first-time readers to see some of those names on a crib sheet. I've included a sample genealogy and a list of important characters at the back of the guide in the appendix. Some editions include a list of the characters at the beginning of the translation, and some even offer pronunciation guides. I think the Pavir and Valkonsky one uh, translation includes a, a beautiful pronunciation guide at the outset. You might practice reading some of the names aloud together, but I would not obsess about proper pronunciation with this age group. Also, bear in mind, too, that a lot of the problems surrounding these names will evaporate once the students get to know and love the characters. Finally, I encourage our listeners to look at the lovely illustrations in the guide and to use them. We gave a lot of thought to them and I think the students will benefit from seeing them. Those uh, are great strategies and I think I, I, sometimes you talk about a t uh, seminar leader being a, a mountain guide and I think that you know a mountain guide knows the way up so that for example, the syllabus that you think we ought to give our students uh, really helps them, mm -hmm. you know, climb that mountain. Uh, but each of them, you know, climbs it on his or her own. And I, and I think you've given the students the latitude, the freedom to do that. Anyway, those are great tips. Really helpful. Okay, here's a final question. Teachers may well wonder how to develop enough expertise in order to lead truly good discussions. Your guide mm -hmm. is hugely helpful in that regard. Mm, good. Are there other resources you recommend for teachers who are going to lead students through the Brothers K? The, really, the best preparation to read the Brothers Karamazov is to read it attentively and to mark it. And as a reader yourself, enter into that whole beautiful world with your senses alert. And since it's long, it's important to keep track of significant details in the margins and to keep a running list of page numbers that recapitulate earlier passages or which introduce important details that I want to remember later. I have a very well annotated, actually I have several well annotated copies now, and those are very useful to me to keep track of what's going on. It's useful to notice the little details that might escape uh, the students at the outset. Ivan and Smirnikov, for instance, are the same age, and Smirnikov seems to be mimicking in his kind of hackneyed way some of the 
arguments that he's overheard Yvonne making. Uh, Zazama's body uh, seems to prematurely decay, whereas Ilusha's is preternaturally fragrant. All these little tiny details fill out this world, and noticing them as a reader is, is important. At least those two are important. Additionally, some years ago, I read a beautiful article about the power of memory and its redemptive quality. It was written by a man named Donald Sheehan. Sheehan has passed away now, but he was a Dartmouth professor, and he was a a member of the Orthodox Church. He experienced a massive conversion to the Orthodox faith, which he details in this article, and it's called Dostoevsky and Memory Eternal, an Eastern Orthodox Approach to the Brothers Karamazov. I think of everything I have ever read, read, this this was possibly the most helpful for understanding remembrance and that interconnectedness that we were discussing earlier. My guide also directs teachers to important scriptural and cultural references that prove helpful in understanding critical moments. There are scriptural references all over the book but not all of them have to be addressed in a first reading. So I have uh, just addressed the ones that I think are essential in the guide. Finally, prefacing each book of the guide, I've included a commentary on its content to orient the teacher to the issues raised and to help the teachers keep the overall architecture of the piece firmly in hand. Our listeners can see a sample of one of those, I think it's uh, book 11, that commentary, I think, is loaded up as a sample on our website, and that might help teachers know what uh, what the guide includes. You might be interested to know that uh, I posted that Sheehan article on social media, and if, of all the hundreds of things I've linked to over mm-hmm. the years, that singularly is the one that's gotten the most hits and, mm-hmm. and uh, for which I've received the most likes. Uh-huh. Isn't that interesting? I think people are really hungry to learn more about memory, they're they're really starving for that uh, that believability of the interconnectedness of things that yes. the, the novel makes so real for us. It's it's a stunning article, I think. Yeah, yeah, really beautiful. Jeanette, the guide is terrific. Uh, you've written the, the best guide on the best book, and <laughs> uh, you uh, for this reader. You have increased my love for the Brothers Karamazov. I, I look forward to reading it again. Well, Thanks a lot. Good. It's a lot of fun. Thanks no, for spending some pleasure. time. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Classics. You can find Jeanette's guide on the Brothers Karamazov, plus all of her blog posts at www.kanaacademy.org. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our producer is Helen DeSell Zorneman. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kana Academy, thanks for listening to Classics. Classics.